As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you know that it is brought to you by QuickBooks Self-Employed. So listen, if you own your own business, this is the best thing you can do for yourself because you know, you, you make money, you get 1099 and then it's the worst thing of all time because you're like, I don't know how much I owe to the government. I don't know how much I owe in taxes. It's terrible. This takes all the guesswork out of that. Go to tryselfemployed.com slash words, and you can get 50% off of this thing. It's incredible. I use it, and a lot of my other friends use it. It is a, just just do it, okay? 50% off, on with the show. Listen, there's something else I wanted to tell you. So this show works with an amazing company called The Midroll, and they help service advertisements for you, the listener. Because, you know, this thing, it costs money. And, uh, you know, I make no hardly any money off this thing. I just want it to keep rolling. So that is what the mid-roll helps me do. And in turn, I want to be able to show you awesome stuff. Stuff that is relevant to you, your interests, all that stuff. So just take a five-minute survey. Go to podsurvey.com backslash words. It'll take five minutes. You'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And it will tell you, us and the mid-roll so much about what it is you listen to, what it is you like, all that stuff. Because then we're able to take that information and make it better as far as the ads are concerned. So just just go ahead and do that, podsurvey.com backslash words. Now, here's the real start of the show. Hello, everyone. I don't know why I decided to sing this intro. Welcome to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and we are here with another beautiful episode this week. The guest is John Vanderslice from Tiny Telephone Studios, also a very prolific and important solo musician. He's done so much stuff over his long career within the independent music circuit that I had to speak to him. So more on him in, in a few moments. Let's get some observations and pleasantries out of the way and then we'll dive into the interview so visit the show's website 100wordspodcast.com and you can interact with us on there or on twitter facebook however you'd like to find us because you know i like it i like when people 
email the show. I like when people tweet. It's nice. It provides some context for this show. Know that it's just, you know, it's just me. It's me and Tom doing this. So there's no one else that's really messing around with this. So when you're speaking to the show's social networks, you're speaking to myself or Tom. So anyways, I saw Refused recently. They came through Southern California, played some shows, and holy shit, was it good. I saw them a few years ago when they played Coachella. Uh, They played a show a night or two before at the Glass House here in Pomona. And holy moly, was that good then. And they were even better now. I just love seeing bands that basically don't mess around. They take what they do very seriously, and they make sure that they put on the best show imaginable. And if you want to listen to Dennis on this particular show, hop back a couple, I don't know, 100 episodes. I can't remember exactly. But he did a great interview on the show. So anyways, refused, spectacular. See them if they're ever in your area. It will be worth it. And then I had something weird happen to me recently for my day job. So my day job is paying attention to pop culture and young people, what they're into, you know. And obviously social media and social media celebrities are a thing. And it was weird because I had a meeting with a manager of a uh, 15-year-old social media celebrity. And she came to the meeting as well. And, you know, so I was interacting with the manager and kind of giving them a sort of business pitch, as it were. But then I, I forgot what it was like to be 15 years old and honestly not really be able to communicate your ideas well or appropriately for that matter. And it was just, uh, I don't know, it just kind of brought me back to where it's just like, oh, yeah, like sometimes it's really easy to, um, you know, judge younger people and be like, oh, they're stupid and dumb. But then you're like, well, I was that too. And sometimes it's just a nice refocus of, of perspective where it's just like, oh, yeah, like, you know, that's that's because they're 15 years old. And they don't know how to express themselves. And the stories that they tell may not lead anywhere. And, um, you know, sometimes that happens. So it, it was just a funny experience for me to kind of be like, oh, yes, that's. That is where you were at when you were that age. And, um, you know, I was the same way too. Not like I am any better at communicating at this point. I'm hopefully a little bit better than I was when I was 15. But still, it was just an interesting dichotomy. And, I mean, that's something that we all experience. As we get older and are still engaged with independent music, um, it's something that we'll have to, you know, figure out. And that's why, like, when I bring younger people on this show – it's one of those things where I, I sometimes feel like I'm like, oh, well, I, I guess I have to do most of the lifting and most of the uh, questions and conversation points I'll obviously need to bring up as opposed to rely on that person for conversation. So anyways, this person I did not need to lean on because he provided so many amazing stories and so much great insight. John Vanderslice, like I said, a very prolific solo musician as well as basically a indie rock guru when it comes to recording at his studio tiny telephone studios basically anybody involved in indie rock from the early 90s on has probably done something with john vanderslice i mean death cap for cutie i'm not even going to do the list because you can do four seconds of your own research and find out how important him and his studio was so he has recently done a reissue of an old lp of his through the native sound friends of the show great label so uh they brought this idea to me and were like hey would you like to talk to john and i was like you know i i personally don't have a huge investment in him or his music but i know he's important 
And holy crap, I love this conversation. It was so good. And um, yeah, uh, without further ado, here is my discussion with John and so much great stuff. So much great stuff. So I'll talk to you after the interview is over. And I'll uh, tie a nice little bow on For every broken masthead and scotch tape sale that passed us by. Usually I start these things off with just my own personal introduction to kind of, you know, what you are and what you're doing, but I was always familiar with your name uh, just because, I mean, I've been playing in bands and been involved in the music industry for a long time, and, you know, Tiny Telephone always always popped up when bands that, uh, you know, for producers to record with and that sort of stuff, um, but you've always, just in kind of knowing your credits and everything like that, you've always struck me as a, a, a very hardworking person and very uh, prolific, not only in your recording output, but then your own musical output. Um, simple question. Are, are you a workaholic? You seem like you uh, you kind of like to dig into that. Yeah, you know, it's weird. People tell me that I am, but I am the most lazy person in the universe. I mean, if I can not do anything, I'm almost... <laughs> Like I have no interest in, uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not driven. I see the workaholic behavior in other people. I think it's ridiculous. Like I just, I don't know what they're in a hurry for. So I guess that, um, I'm a split personality in that way, but I, I definitely do. I guess I do get a lot of stuff done, but I, I don't know why I'm drawn to do it because I'm not in any way, um, like actually, you know, most workaholics I know are like running from something, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, like psych- psychologically, you know what I mean? Like there, there's something really sad. I mean, I get emails from bands, you know, with their touring schedule and I'm like, you know, my gut feeling is just to say like, guys, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like I, I don't, I don't actually don't look at it and think, wow, how great you're going on tour again for the 29th time. I think, wow, this is pathetic. Right. Like, this is sad, you know. Yeah. I mean, no, you get the, the point at some at yeah. some point, you know. Totally, totally. No, I I see what you're talking about because there's definitely a different mentality in regards to uh, work when you're just using it as simply distract uh, a distraction, you know. Uh, even though it's yeah, obviously yeah. being productive, but uh, yeah, so you you don't view work as a distraction. You just view your work as kind of a I don't know a trade or a craft, as it were. Oh yeah, I'm I'm old school, man. I'm like a, I could have been like a plumber or an electrician or something. You know, I don't I don't <clears throat> I think that craft and work is sacred in its own right. And I don't I'm very non-hierarchical. Like I don't really care. Like I, I actually really truly don't care if a band that comes to us is a micro band that you've never heard of and are not interested in, or if they're like super huge and famous and culturally incredible you know like i don't it doesn't it really actually doesn't mean anything to me at all right it doesn't hold it doesn't hold any weight it actually might hold even the it might even have like a, an opposite pole where we do we have had really big bands in the studio and there was sometimes like such a pain in the ass that i actually like it if there's some kind of sanity um in there so i usually actually lean the other way where it's just like sorry my phone is like going crazy today man it's okay 
Um, this is the one thing I could do without is my phone ever ringing. So that's definitely one vote for being lazy all day long, right? No one ever contacting you. Sure. Be the best. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess that I'm, I, I really have a very democratic thing somewhere inside of me. And I just, you know, I would have been totally happy by just working anywhere. But as long as I'm like practicing a craft, like, I don't know, I always thought I'd be totally into like furniture making or something, you know? Right. Well, I, I noticed in, in kind of looking at your your you know life trajectory, uh, I'll, I'll back it up a little further. But like you you had aspirations at one point to you know kind of be interested in teaching. Am I correct in that? Oh, I, I could have been an absolutely very happy teacher. I mean, I probably I think all teachers ultimately get disappointed with like the commitment commitment level of the the students. You know, I'm sure that that would wear you down. Right. You know, like I think about trying to teach me, and I'm just like, oh boy, no thanks. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. Coming, coming. Me personally, coming from a family of teachers, like my wife is a teacher, and my mother is a teacher, and you, you are completely correct. It's not your own, um, I guess, ideals and drive. It definitely just gets kind of squashed by. It's like, oh, dude, like, you know, I got forty kids, and like, thirty-eight of them care, but those two that don't just kill it for everybody. Oh man. <laughs> oh yeah, I bet it would totally wear you down. So yeah, but but I, I would absolutely. I mean, I'm drawn to it. I, certainly, the, a lot of the studio is built upon teaching. I mean, I always think that bands should book time in a studio to learn about how to be a better band. I mean, I think that a good studio can actually, I've had fantastic experiences in the studio where it's actually made me a better thinker about music, you know, that it's like, sorry, I'm filling my bird feeder right now. It's okay. <laughs> I, have, I have two bird feeders and I have like a million birds that come into my backyard. So I'm like really obsessed with them. Sure. <laughs> Really, really fun. That's a, that's a, that's a uh, that's a very cute hobby. Oh yeah, I'm I'm totally committed. I had like I, I have these like these um, bird feeders that like the base of it spins if something heavy gets on there. So like for instance, if a squirrel gets on it, it'll kind of spin them off. But sure. you could have like nine birds on it and it'll be fine. That's funny. That's funny. So I, I I mean I probably have like. 500 birds in my backyard in any given day. I mean, sometimes there's like 30 birds in my backyard at one time. It's amazing. <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, give you any sort of uh, Alfred Hitchcock-esque flashbacks of the birds? <laughs> no. Well, you know, it does. You know what does give me that is when my girlfriend and I were, were just actually up in Bodega Bay, and that, that's, that will give you a flashback. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> Once you're like, oh, wait, I, I recognize that school. I recognize that playground. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, sure, absolutely, and that phone booth, which is, I don't think it's still there. But, yeah, um, yeah the, I, I, the, these are pretty like, little, adorable little birds. <laughs> right. yeah. There's no, there's no threat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you were uh, you you were born and raised in uh, in Gainesville, which um you know I mean I, I've spent a decent amount of time there going through on on tours and there's like a music festival that happens down there. Um, it, it's an it's such an interesting town because obviously it's like youthful based on the fact that it's a, a college town. Um, but then yeah, yeah. Uh, but then there's there's that sort of you know a huge kind of suburban blight where it's like you could definitely have this uh, you know whatever for lack of a better term just very uh, typical existence. Um, I know you only live there. Yeah. yeah. You only lived there until you were about what eleven or twelve. Yeah, but but Gainesville shaped me in many. We we lived actually inside of Gainesville, and in, in like it wasn't like a planned community. We actually lived in like a you know very close to the school, and it was it's you know it was a very southern 
like not it was a very like northern florida existence for sure like i when i go back there it's very very it's a very very particular feeling i have when i connect with my family and my relatives there and i also spent time in jacksonville and swanee river so i was that, that was really the the you know the the context of my like growing up and discovering music and um just kind of waking up you know it was a really I mean, I look, I, I, the main thing for me was that I was, had a lot of space and it was very wild. I, I had almost no supervision as a kid, which was fantastic. I mean, it was just amazing. And it really changed the way that I um, <clears throat> kind of operated and it gave me a lot of room to grow up on my own. And it made me a better person. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you, are you an only child or do you have siblings? I have a brother. Um, but, you know, early divorce, single mom, and, you know, I, I, my, I definitely hung out with my brother some, but, he, you know, he was older. He wasn't really into hanging out with me. But I, I certainly had, like, a lot of friends, and we all had a lot of freedom. And there was nothing but space mm-hmm. for us to run around, especially in Jacksonville, <clears throat> which was we were connected to. The apartment complex we lived in was connected to, like, a vast you know, many square miles of like undeveloped, basically like sand dunes and just empty woods. And it was just unbelievable to have that. Well, yeah, it's funny because a lot of people have an impression of, uh, a lot of people define Florida as, I mean, it's such a weird state because not only because of the weather, but obviously just the, uh, the age makeup of Florida because typically people retire there and you don't really, uh, you don't get the sense of besides like Miami that it's a very useful state. So it's funny that you had this kind of like wide open spaces, wilderness impression of it because that's not what, I don't think people typically think of that. Oh, yeah, well, that's definitely the split between, like, coastal, you know, wealthy, you know, transitional Florida, you know, like the, you know, retirement community vibe and tourist Florida, and then also the northern part of the state, which is much more connected to Georgia, you know, Alabama. I mean, you you would, you you could, when I tour the south or when I used to tour the south, I, I, I really felt that that was, could be much more folded into, like, a, you know, South Carolina, Georgia, that that corridor there, and Northern Florida are all very, very connected to me. Mm-hmm, sure, um, and so and then you move out to uh, to Maryland when you were, or yeah, the Maryland area when you were whatever. You know, just just starting to enter high school. Um, like you yeah. said, like you said, music got already kind of introduced to you um, in in Florida. But where did your eyes start to open up to kind of the you know, for lack of a better term, the less mainstream, more independent side of things? Was that when you were in Maryland? Oh yeah, it was when I was in Maryland. Basically, my my mom. We grew up relatively poor, and unlike when people usually say that and they're lying, I am actually not lying. <laughs> and when I was uh, eleven, my mom married, remarried a doctor, and I was basically a, like a rich kid. You know, I mean, in, in the scheme of things, I we went from lower middle class to upper middle class, and a month, you know, we moved up to suburb of DC and, you know, called Potomac, Maryland, which is a very, very wealthy city. And we went to very, very good public schools. I got braces. I learned to ditch my Southern accent in in about five minutes. And, (laughs) you know, with that kind of suburban, like excess comes a lot of access to drugs. And so that's really what changed with me was moving to Maryland and 
discovering like a kind of a drug subculture and I I hit that very early because I had an older brother. So, you know, by the time I was in probably the middle of seventh grade, I was doing acid and cocaine. Oh, wow. Yeah, you were sampling the, uh, I was young, the soft stuff, yeah. as it were. It was, uh, it was directly to the, the harder drug. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like, the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, and when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Excuse me, and pardon the interruption, but... There's something I recently discovered and was brought to my attention that I wanted you to know about. So let's face it. Most of us that are listening to podcasts and are into music nerd stuff, you know, we rely on our friends to tell us what is cool, what's in style, what's, you know, just what's what's happening from that perspective. So there's this awesome thing called Loot Crate. And so basically, you know, you've heard of those delivery services that give you food and snacks and whatever else. This is basically a cooler version of all that. And when I say cool, I mean they deliver to you really, really awesome things from properties like Star Wars, The Walking Dead, Marvel Comics, Legend of Zelda. All of this stuff will come to your doorstep for like $0 a month. That's not true. It's, it's $20 a month. But you get six to eight items of cool stuff. And, you know, I've seen it, and it's really high quality things so you know like t-shirts other trinkets you know figurines all that sort of stuff so 
basically just it's rad i really think that you'll enjoy it and i want you to check it out so go to lootcrate.com backslash words and enter the code words w-o-r-d-s and then you'll get three bucks off your first box and trust me it's really really fun because we're not just into music we like comics we like movies all that other stuff so yes just dive in lootcrate.com backslash words and enter the code words to receive three dollars off your first box it's awesome do it and you'll enjoy it on with the show All right, so at the top of the show, I told you about something called QuickBooks. Now, I know finances and taxes are kind of the last thing you want to hear about when you're you know, relaxing, enjoying this beautiful interview. But trust me, it's something you need to be concerned about. Because at the end of the day, most of us are working for ourselves in some capacity, whether or not you have a full-time job and you do something on the side, like this podcast, for an example. You know, I make a little money off this thing, and I need to put some of it aside each month because otherwise I, I'm going to be screwed at the end of the year and I'm going to have no idea how much money I owe and taxes and all that stuff. But here's where the solution comes in. QuickBooks, self-employed, helps you figure that all out. It helps you keep track of your finances in relation to your personal side of things and the business side of things because that way, come tax time, you're just like, yeah, press a few buttons, boom, bam, done. That's it. It'll tell you how much you owe in taxes. It'll tell you how much you should put aside each month. It's amazing. And not only do I use it, but the record label that I help do some consulting work for, No Sleep Records, we use it as well. It's awesome. It's great. It's in the cloud. It's so easy to use. So visit QuickBooks Self-Employed, okay? Just go to this website, tryselfemployed.com slash words, and you will get 50% off this thing. 50%, that's half off for something that will make your life so much better. I promise you. So visit tryselfemployed.com slash words, 50% off. Your life will be better. Your finances will be in order. I mean, basically you'll be a millionaire after you do this. Okay? So just do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd smoked weed before I was in, in junior high school, and I had definitely, I had a insatiable desire I mean, it was. I mean, I, I remember reading William Burroughs' Junkie when I was in seventh grade, thinking, "Okay, I'm going to be a heroin addict." Like that, that's what I had in my head, right. and I, I actually ended up becoming a very, very, very sane drug user. Unlike a lot of people that I grew up with, I, I backed away very quickly. I think maybe by the time I was sixteen, I was essentially straight edge, straight edge without the politics, but straight edge meaning. Also, that I had no friends because all my friends still did drugs. So right. that was a very rough moment in my life. Yeah. Well, but, no, that, that, but, that, it's interesting that you had that that sort of, you know, really, really uh, hard experience. Because I do think, I mean, especially, um, you know, in, in the context in which you were approaching the drug use, like at, at one point before, you know, I mean, I, I'm 34 years old and, you know, you're a bit older than me. So there's a generational difference. Like, you know, once I started to enter, you know, junior high, that was when like, you know, the D.A.R.E. program was a thing. And obviously drugs were oh, yeah. were less, uh, for lack of a better term, sexy. So it's like, but there's a, I mean, especially the, the 60s beat poets and everybody else that existed in that scene, that was totally glamorized. And it was cool to do that. So I could see where you would look at that and be like, oh, yeah, that seems cool. I'll, I'll try that out. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. But I mean, even the, you know, they can they can throw every school program at you, but if you want to do drugs and there's many human human beings that are wired to do drugs, you know, you're gonna you're gonna glamorize them on your own, you know. And but but I think that really the interesting thing with all this, I mean, the the thing that first off, there's a survival thing. I mean, you you know, if if you're that, I was incredibly reckless for a couple of years, and I and there was. Um, just a point where you realize that you want to survive and you're going to also watch a lot of people not survive. And I, 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 when I look at the record of those days, it's totally fucking insane. I mean, but, but what, what I, the reason why I brought that up and I forgot why I brought it up initially, but it's really was that my whole entire connection to life was music via drugs. I mean, that, that's where everything changed. And, so that's when I got interested in, you know, good music. I mean, I I grew up in really a home with that didn't play music, didn't have a stereo, didn't even listen to the radio, and and here I was, you know, in someone's basement listening to, you know, the Zombies or or Yes, you know, records, right. <laughs> and like, and and the and the drugs were very very part of that the the that that was like the door into more complicated and more really ambitious music for me at that time later on it didn't the, the thing is i would argue that stuff stays with you forever i mean that's the interesting thing is that i still i still see music as being you know what kind of reflected through that um that experience even though i don't really do drugs anymore and so i think that there i mean i i always i always I mean, I probably said this two days ago. I look at a band and I'm like, "Hey, more druggy, please." You know, like let's let's make it a little bit sexier. You know what I mean? And like, and it doesn't really have anything to do with with taking drugs. In fact, I've made records with people that are totally straight edge that are so weird. I mean, they make some of the weirdest music I've ever heard. Right. And so it doesn't really have anything to do with drugs, but it has to do with a a connection to the unconscious and an automatic way of being creative and free a freedom and a lack of of um i don't know like inhibition uh, of of kind of like oh i'm sorry i was just saying like maybe you know lack of like inhibition like you're 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 less a hundred percent lack of inhibition but also a lack of formality you know like steve jobs mentioned that taking acid helped him rewrite you know, pathways in his brain and helped him really to like program, you know, and I've heard that from a lot of Silicon Valley people. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, like getting rid of, um, you have to shed musical history somehow, or you're going to make some boring ass music, man. And so that's, you know, that's the part of the value of that experience for me. And I just try to enforce that with bands. Yeah. So, I mean, that's half of what I do is try to make bands feel secure enough to make music that's original and that's weird. Yeah. Well, no, I think this was actually something I was going to ask a little bit later, but I think it's appropriate to bring up now in regards to um, all the recording experience I personally have had. Like I've played in hardcore bands in the past and I was the lead screamer, as it were. So recording vocals for me was always a a real chore just because, you know, it's such a sterile environment and trying to mimic the 
you know, anger and, and, and ferocity that you're trying to get out. It, it's tough. But the thing that I've noticed in, in a good studio experience is obviously the vibes, like the vibes that you, the producer or engineer, are trying to, to create. Um, and it sounds to me like, especially with what you're, you're alluding to in the, you know, make it more druggy or whatever. Um, so w- what sort of vibes do you try to like, I guess, concentrate on in the studio? Like, do you know, do you kind of leave it very free for bands to, you know, experiment, but then obviously rein them in when it's, when it's necessary? Like are vibes important to you, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. And, and well, I mean, one, there's a couple things I do. One is that I try to remind, remind bands, like they'll often say like, the thing that everyone does, you know, they'll say like, Oh, let's put phaser on the drums. And I'm, and I'll just be like, listen, man, every single man asks me for the same five stupid things. <laughs> and like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like mellow when I say this, but I'm just like, I'm here to just tell you what everyone asks for. So you don't have to be, you know, so you don't lump yourself in with the rest of like humanity. You know what I mean? Like, you know, every band asks for some kind of rewind or fast forward sound when we're on the tape machine to be kind of like recorded onto their song. And like, you know, it's, it's, it, I think it's really important to have this kind of, um, you know, bullshit kind of meter, you know, next to you that says, mm, it's not only been done before, but it's been done like every day in every studio, you know, and I, I think that that's very useful. The other thing that's useful is to, is to actually encourage bands to be their most creative and their most bold self. I mean, if you listen to good records, interesting albums made right now, they're fearless, man. I mean, you listen to that new Kendrick Lamar record, it's like a fearless record. You listen to the new Freddie Gibbs record, um, Pinata with Mad Lib, it's fearless. I mean, these are people that really don't give a shit, man, or the death grips, you know, like they just don't care. And, I just think that most bands are incredibly conservative. They're unbelievably conservative and afraid. And that's the big problem that I see in in music. It's never performance. I don't care about precision in playing. Not only do I don't care about it, I usually try to veer away from it um, because it's boring. And it's, it's also, there's something amazing to allow the listener to correct performance and pitch, you know, to bring them into the, into the creative process. It's a very, very interesting trick. I mean, you're, you're, you're never going to allow something to really be that out. I mean, we've had the, both of us about the experience of listening to stuff that at first listen was the most out of tune or in, you know, sloppily played record ever. And then the 10th time you hear it, it's perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's really crazy. It happens all the time. And it's, really you begin to love that feeling, you know, of like where you're drawn in, the listener is actually crucial to finishing the album. And it's, it's not that it's just like outsider, you know, look how goofy this is played or they, how punk it's it's not even that. It's just that the, the, you're better off with that first transmission of ideas onto tape than the 30th transmission of ideas to tape. Because what, listeners connect to is blood you know they connect to like oxygen you know in performance and bands can are very very afraid of i mean they're really really afraid of of uh, anything that's out of the ordinary that's kind of like out of uh really outside of the history of the mu- of like the music that they're familiar with i mean you know bands will sit on the couch and talk about how much they love like 
you know, abstract electronica or completely deconstructed weird music or the first Animal Collective record is being like, oh, that's really a jumping off point. And then they are terrified when the record lights on. You know, it's really, so I've got to help them bridge that gap between what they want and what they're comfortable doing. Yeah, now I, I mean, I love the way you're talking about it because it, it definitely, um, in the way you're describing it, it's obviously so much more of uh, a, a psychological um, journey that you go through. Because yeah, you do see when bands first enter their first sort of professional recording experience in a studio, um, that you know they're like deer, a deer in the headlights. They're terrified. They don't know what they're doing. And then hopefully, like you said, when they get finished with that experience that they will be essentially a different band because of it, you know, not, not so much maybe sonically, yeah. but just like, Oh, now I know how to do like, but, but hopefully sonically yeah, too, true, because true. live music is, is a snooze, man. I mean, seriously, like live bands are a snooze. I mean, it's like, you better be balls out the best live band. If you're going to, if that's your recorded output is going to be a little literal representation of what you do on stage, then you better be like drawn blood live but most bands and i mean like a very very high percentage of bands have to use the studio it'd be like the difference between like a play filmed and like actually making a movie where you're utilizing um editing and cinematography and soundtrack in a way where it's not just a literal representation of a script um and so you know i mean look at the recorded output of the clash i mean that's a very interesting um, way to utilize, you know, you you compare Sandinista to the first Clash record, you know, in Combat Rock, and it's, this is a band that's really using the studio in a way that's like absolutely bolstering their, you know, their ideas and their songwriting. It's yeah. very very interesting. No, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, it's it, it's yeah, it's it's very reflective of obviously their career and how important it was to so many people because they they touched so many musical genres and brought so many people into their journey that followed them along so yeah you're right um the so you know as you started to kind of kind of like you know backing it up kind of like getting into high school and kind of you know forming your own identity as it were you know what kind of uh what kind of kid did you find yourself being were you you know uh, really drawn to the arts at the time or were you you know super into sports like what sort of archetype did you uh fill within uh within that context i was a, like a straight up loser man big sure. time <laughs> total like bur- total and not burnout. a not a cool not like a cool loser in retrospect like like i was programming you know like you know early commodore computers i was just a straight up loser just total burnout loser not good at sports not good at talking to girls not good at anything i mean i i you know i mean i turned it around but it wasn't like there's nothing interesting about my my early uh my early self i don't think i mean i i probably had a lot going on upstairs but i definitely you know i was like a man my neighbor's dog is being really loud sorry. that's okay um <laughs> so you you were just, I, I, you, you were just kind of aimless yeah i was just like uh you know until i basically straightened up i was like a flop you know i mean i was uh you know I, I i graduated high school with a d average you know i mean i barely got into college and i you know i had no girlfriends i just I was just like a loser, man, it, which is fine. I mean, at least I got it out of my system, you know. What I mean? Yeah. Like, hey, some people are losers when they're like when they're 27, you know. What I mean? like, totally. Like I, at least I got it out of my system and like moved on, you know. And I definitely, I learned some tough, tough uh, lessons. I mean, I learned 
<clears throat> I'm going to go inside because this dog is, first of all, it's freezing. It's okay. Um, but I, um, you know, I learned like really, really tough lessons and I never forgot them, man. And I definitely, I mean, I lost control of my life through drugs and I that never allowed that to happen again. And so really by the time I was like in college, I graduated early because I basically, I just had to escape high school. I got very lucky. I had a principal that just recognized that if I didn't get out of high school, I would not, I would not ever get out of high school. So he like pushed me to take, you know, 12th grade English in the summer, in the summer. And then he like got me into the state, you know, local state university, which isn't a good school. You didn't really need transcripts to get into, but he got me out of high school. And then once I was in college, it was amazing. Yeah. I was like, totally reborn as a person. It was great. Sure. So basically you felt like you were really able to kind of develop the, per d develop into the person that you are via college as opposed to, you know, a lot of, other Oh people. yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Reading movies, like, you know, like a different set of friends and like no bro culture, you know, like it was much better. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so then what's, uh, what prompted, because I mean, once you graduated and kind of like we spoke about earlier, you kind of had your eye on, on potentially teaching. What prompted the, uh, obviously the cross continent move to, um, to San Francisco? Cause that's where you, you ended up, uh, in, that's where you ended up initially, right? After the East coast. Yeah, I, I did. Well, I moved to LA and then I, there was a, like a girl that I liked here. So I moved up here to be with her and then that didn't work out. Unfortunately, she actually like, like wouldn't let me date her. <laughs> so it's like, it was it was like a, it wasn't even like a near miss. It just didn't happen, you know, but I stayed because the city is very interesting. You know, it's still a very interesting city to live in. And I think that it's connected to a, a coastal beauty. That's if you are immune to it, then you are a, a corpse. You know what I mean? Like, to me, it became very, very important to be connected to Northern California, and and also the the food and the the just the openness of the culture here, and it's very, very mixed. It's an incredibly diverse area. The Bay Area in general is very, very diverse. Absolutely, um, it's very progressive politically. Uh, you know, I just I I just fell in love with it. I mean, I, I wouldn't have stayed here because it's so, it's so expensive. I wouldn't have stayed here, but I, you know, I rented a warehouse and it became tiny telephone. And I, I so I was really ground, you know, I was rooted here. And for many years I was touring so much that it was totally fine to be here and to be traveling. And, you know, I wasn't, whatever restless kind of feeling I had, um, it was, you know, it was kind of solved by touring. And then, you know, I basically stopped touring last year and I'm very happy here, you know? Yeah, no, that that's really rad. I, I definitely appreciate your um your, your your thoughts like you were mentioned at the very beginning when bands are, you know, on the perpetual touring cycle off of supporting their new record and then tour for ten months and then go back in the studio and obviously you were a part of that for a long time and then now you have the perspective where, oh, yeah. you, where you can look at that. Um the uh so I guess I guess in your own head, when did you start to butt up against that idea of just like dude, I don't want to like get in that proverbial saddle again and like do that whole touring regimen. Um, cause obviously I imagine you were still kind of touring when that thought process started to click in your head. When did it become more clear that you, uh, wanted to <laughs> step away and obviously focus on, on life, uh, life at home as it were. 
Well, touring to me has always been sacred. I mean, I, I think that the relationship, if you have a relationship with performing live and you're able to do it all the time, it's, that's a very, very sacred connection that you have. Like I, I think about like the, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of hours that I've been on stage playing. It's just incredible, man. It's like, I was so lucky when I was younger. That's all I wanted to do was to be able to tour. That's the only thing I could think of. Um, and so that was like a really, really big deal for me. Um, it's not that I got it out of my system. It's that, um, I had like a near death experience on the, as, as every band has, I'm, I'm actually, most bands have had multiple near death experiences. Some are closer than others. Some have flipped their van. Some have gotten into highway wrecks. Some have just like had their own deaths, deaths like foreshadowed. Um, you know, on the highway, and that—that's the—that's what happened to me. And I, I just, I just something clicked in my head. I was like, "Yeah, I'm done. That's fine. I don't want to die here, man. I'm in love. I, I have two beautiful cats. You know, I got a lot of friends. I'm. There's a lot of stuff to do in life, and I'm, I'm not going to die on, on the, on the 80 today. It's like, <laughs> and so like, you know, I, I don't look back with one second of regret to my. I, I was fully committed to touring. I mean, I played over a thousand shows. I mean, I was totally there and, and I love it, but it more in theory, just like, you know, like, um, it's just something that I did, you know, all the time in one phase in my life. And there's a, there's a big world out there. And so I decided to stop, you know, there's a couple other reasons too. One was that if you don't stop touring completely, you'll just, you know, I get asked to, I still have a booking agent. I get asked to go on tours. If I didn't just turn the tap off, I would just keep doing it. You know what I mean? Like I would just keep going. Right. And I, I just decided to really focus on production. Like that was like, a, and you can't focus on production if you're going in and out of town all the time. It just doesn't work that way. And then once I decided to focus on production, I decided to open a new studio in Oakland. And so that became like a, like a different kind of challenge to me. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Right, right, yeah. No, I, I, I could easily see, especially from the the production side of things, because usually, you know, stereotypically speaking, people that are performing music or in bands, you know, they don't have something else at home that is like, I guess, as compelling, you know, like or, or like a job or something that they could kind of pour themselves into. So it's like I'm sure there were many years where you're on the road where you're just like, I kind of wish I could record a little bit more, but that time is not there because I'm gone so much. Oh. Uh Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a major cockblock for your life to be on tour, for sure. Right, right. Um, and so then, uh, as you started to uh, you know perform, I mean, like you know, playing bands and stuff was was uh, was you as a, a as a solo artist? Like, was that kind of the I guess inception of your like playing shows and stuff like that, or was the obviously the the band life uh, a first? Like, where was your kind of you know uh, your your uh, chops, I guess, created in regards to uh, performing live. 
Well, definitely being, you know, my first band in Ultra, that was where I did, that's where I learned how to play with people and how to be creative in a room full of people. Um, and bands are problematic in general. They're difficult democracies to kind of make work, you know, but they also teach you a lot. And I just, I learned an awful lot and it was really a good experience for me to then, you know, when I, when I started putting out solo records in, in 2000, then I, I really started, you know, having like smaller groups of people that I was collaborating with sometimes over, you know, five or six years, you know, <clears throat> and then I would have natural turnover. Some people would get into other bands, some people would move away, but it was really organic process of playing with different people and hiring people for tours. Um, you know, sometimes I would want to do a tour that was a trio. So you'd have to have like very different players on that tour than when it's a quintet um, or when it's a duo. And so it, that I really think that that helped me kind of grow too, to play with a bunch of people after I got out of the band, a bunch of different people. They're usually <clears throat> better musicians than you are. You know, that's the cool thing about when you're solo, you're almost always playing with people who are more skilled than you are. And it's, pretty exciting actually sure sure yeah you can you definitely um can vibe off one another in ways that you maybe not originally anticipated because they're just like oh wow they're you know either a better player than i am in this respect so i gotta you know <laughs> make sure i'm keeping up with them or vice versa oh yeah absolutely the um so would you would you define uh kind of the way that you you know you approach recording and stuff like that and the the rapport that you build with the bands, like, is that reflective of your personality or do you kind of find yourself, um, you know, a adopting different traits uh, for, you know, the purposes of, of recording bands or do you kind of, you know, are you consistent <clears throat> from that aspect? Um, you, do you mean when I'm producing uh, it, bands or when I'm making my own record? Yeah. When, you, when you're producing bands. I, I try to, yeah. I mean, I I try to be as far as like what I've learned and my own my what what's natural to me. I try to be. I try to bring a style, and I try to bring like all the knowledge that I have, to bands like one hundred percent. In other words, I'm very unfiltered when I'm recording bands. I don't I don't just sit back and place microphones and like document a performance. That to me is like first off, it's really boring, and second off, it's kind of not fair to the bands because you know, they're, they're like, you, you want like the more curated experience and, and that's kind of why you're there in the room. And, um, also any experience can be elevated. It can, I mean, even if you're recording like the Chicago symphony orchestra, it can, that experience can still be elevated by <clears throat> very small tweaks, um, and very simple direction. Um, Given, I mean, look at the Keith O. Johnson recordings that he does of symphonic stuff. It's very, very unusual. But yeah, I mean, I'm really, really transparent with bands, and I and I do it with like I have no emotion when I, you know, I I, I give like kind of hard, brutal truths to bands with a smile. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I'm I'm don't shame bands, and I don't, I'm I. It's a celebratory thing for me to be in a studio. Like I I'm thrilled to be there and I'm super happy to be there with bands but I definitely try to be very very honest with them about the quality of what they're doing and how they can make it better and often you can be in a band with a you know in, in studio with a band and they can make something very special 
based on just a little bit of like pushing. You know what I mean? It's not like a huge thing. Sure. You just you switch out, you know, a drum set here. You redefine um, the terms of like a song and singing and tempo and and harmony just slightly. You know, you you just kind of like skew it a little bit. You add distortion where where, where there was like sterility. You you add freedom where there was like fear and band does 95% of the work, you know, but it's really helpful when you're, you're being framed by something, you know? And I, I think that that's where the studio experience can be very interesting. Listen, studios can suck royally, man. I had some of the worst experiences of my life in a recording studio and like most studios aren't very good and most engineers are terrible. So we're really aware of that, like that historic, baggage you know we're often repairing relationships that bands have had between bad studios right. and, and their own creative life i mean you've probably been in studios where it's been miserable i mean it's just like how often does that happen it happens all the time and it happened to me three times in a row before i started a studio and th- that's crazy you know what i mean like yeah. it's it's not encur- it's not encouraging cuz you all you want to do is just be like so this is what this experience is going to be like kind of for the rest of me being creative with music it's like that sounds awful yeah and it is and that's why bands are smart to, most of the time to stay home like we we'll always encourage bands to stay home like sometimes that's the best move that a band can do you know um but when a studio experience is good, it can help a band, a career band, really grow and change. And that's what you need if you're if you want to be a career band. You have to have some some range and some depth to your output. And you know, most bands have a very very miserable discography. I mean, it's a it's a it's a intellectually sloppy and untrue version of their better selves. You know, and like that's not good. You, I mean, the best artists out there, actually, their recorded output is just better than they are. You know what I mean? Like, that's what you want. You, you want the record to be the best thing you ever put together in that year, you know? Yeah. And it's often the exact opposite. I mean, I see tons of bands where I'm like, holy shit, they're so good live, and I've never, ever heard this. Right. Well, you know, I don't see this in their five records that they've made, you know? Well, yeah, it's because a lot of the times you get, you obviously get so bogged down in the business, and it's a matter of simply recording something in order to have that new material that you need to make money off of, i.e. touring and obviously yeah. all the other, you know, accessories that happen. So it's like, yeah, you're you're very right in that fact where it's like you just get kind of caught up in that, that process, and it's just like, well, as long as it's good enough, then it's cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, and also it's like there is, you know, the terror of a band too, like getting too bogged down budget-wise in a record. I mean, I get it. I get some of that stuff, you know. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Um, and so you, you've had obviously a wide variety of experiences from a business perspective within the industry from not only obviously managing your own studio, but then, you know, as a recording artist, you know, being signed to multiple different labels. Um do you would you define yourself as as like i guess good at business because you know there there takes uh, a, a lot of effort from people in bands in order to either wrap their heads around that or is that something you're still kind of evolving into well i would say i mean i was lucky man i, I mean i i was pushed into getting a degree in econ i think that really helped and i think that 
um, I have like Dutch blood in me, and this is like a ridiculous thing to say, but I at least was deluded into thinking that this kind of like mercantile um, worldliness that like the Dutch have <laughs> in spades was like, you know, I got like 1% of it because I was just naturally very, very good at, um, at, at running the business. I, I loved it. I mean, to me, art is like, you know, whatever, man, like until the rubber meets the road until it's like, actually, Oh, this, this was a profitable tour. Like who cares? Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, to me, going on tour and losing money is like, like retarded. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, the whole idea with art is that you, you have to make it sustainable you can keep doing it. I was only interested in career artists. That's all. It wasn't, I wasn't interested in like vanity projects. I wanted to be part of something and do something on my own that was sustainable. It was working class. I never made shit tons of money, but I made money and I was very, very proud and I paid my musicians well. And the same with the studio, like the studio is profitable. It makes money. I don't, I don't think that things are good when they lose money. I actually really don't. I hate to say it, but as a, as a capitalist, like you, there is like a great incentive when now, listen, if you're just a trust funder, then all bets are off. You know what I mean? And you can just like, you can just drain your parents' accounts down to nothing. But if you're a normal working class dude, you have to, it has to be sustainable or else you can't keep doing it. And you will just, you know, you'll like have a nervous breakdown. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll, you'll go bankrupt and you'll owe a lot of money and you'll alienate the people that love you. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. I was very, very proud that I was involved in something and that I encouraged um, bands to be sustainable. And that often means being very, very humble about what you do and how you do it. And I mean, like the way that bands toured, the, the, personnel i mean i man it's amazing how many times i would talk to a band and be like why are you touring with five people right. like what why right you know what i mean like this is why are you touring with like an ampeg refrigerator amplifier like how dumb are you you know what i mean like cabinet and like you know like a like you know like the old nine ten you oh, know yeah. ten inch speaker configuration i i seriously think that that they're like the dumbest bands i've ever seen in my life like they're actually paying to just haul that thing around the country. And it's like, for no reason, it actually sounds worse than like a good small cabinet, you know? Right. So like, there's a million things like that. Like what kind of hotels do you stay in? Like, how do you behave on the road? You know, like, like, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think that, that this stuff has to be sustainable and has to be profitable. Um, unless you're a rich kid, you know what I mean? And, and if you're a rich kid, you know, the, Darwinian side of it might be that you don't have to be very good when you're a rich kid because there's nothing at stake, right? You know. Well, I think it's a, you, what you're talking about. To me, it, it's just a very practical approach. Like there doesn't need to be because I, I think so many people. Um, I don't include you in this because you obviously have a very good business sense as well as an artistic sense about you. But I, I think there's such a uh, there's sometimes a strong delineation in the sand between people who are artists and businessmen and never the two shall collide. And when they do sometimes very, you know, ungenuine art is created because they're trying to make money. But it's like, no, I, I've always, I, I agree with you completely where it's like, it's just a practical approach. Like, you know, you can be unreasonable to a point where it's just like, okay, we're going to take a risk. This tour may lose money or whatever, but 
you know, there's all these reasons why it's positive, but it's like, you know, you shouldn't be staring down the barrel of 10 years of doing the same exact thing. And you're still in that spot where it's like, oh man, this next tour is going to be profitable. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, you know, any band that has made 10 records and that tours, the world makes money. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, so it's not like, so it's almost like you have to do it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like you actually have to reach that point, whether, regardless of how you feel about it. You know what I mean? Like you can have mixed feelings. Hey shit, I have mixed feelings about like, you know, living in the U S I mean, you're going to have mixed feelings about everything. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I have mixed feelings about paying the, you know, the U S federal government. I don't know. I pay like, Twelve, thirteen thousand dollars a year in taxes. I mean, I, I despise this the 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 U.S. government from just from a foreign policy standpoint. It's like to me, it's absolutely despicable. I mean, Chomsky called the U.S. Um, you know the the number one greatest terror world terrorist the other day, and I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like you know we're gonna have mixed feelings about everything. You know what I mean? Like. I mean, you know, I, I shit. I wish, uh, you know, that there was like a, you know, a, a social safety net here to to rival Norway and Germany, but it's not going to happen. And I wish that we didn't spend, you know, twenty to thirty cents a dot every tax dollar on like surveillance society and and on military toys for a bunch of rejects, you know. But that's not going to happen. Right. And so you have to operate within a system within reason. And the system that we have for touring and for making art is that if you're not sustainable and if you're not profitable, then good luck. It's not going to happen. And so you, you, you can't afford to even have mixed feelings about it because you're not going to be able to actually make a responsibly, you know, recorded album. And, and by that, I, you know, you might go to electrical and spend three days with Albini and make like a Jesus list record. I don't know what you're going to do, but it's got to be badass. You know what I mean? Like it's got to be something that's, that's worthy of like of spending 10 years of your life, 15 years of your life. Um, and so, you know, you can be as confused. I, I, I mean, I personally think that's like a dumb thing. I mean, and I hear it all the time and I tell bands all the time that it's like, it's kind of a dumb thing to get, you know, worried that there's like a split between creativity and making money. I mean, you're, you're a human being living in America in 2015. Right. Good luck right. you know, thinking that this is about, you know, you're not like a, the village shaman, you know what I mean? Like, totally. you know, like, first off, no one needs your art, man. Like there's too much art right yeah, now. No one needs a record, totally. you know, like there's, pl- there's plenty of it out there. Just get in line. <laughs> Yeah, yes, exactly. You'd be you should, you know, you should go to Haiti and like do volunteer work, you know, and just be quiet. Yeah, yeah. We need <laughs> we, we need more doctors. We don't need more dudes in bands. <laughs> yes. We yeah, we need more doctors providing free services, but maybe not more doctors. <laughs> right, right. No, I, yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely yeah. It's like like you said, it's just a very it's a practical approach and I I agree. It's just it just needs to be um, But I, but I what what you're saying, I, I hear all, I do hear all the time, but I will say this, that the internet, like most things, the internet is making it better. There are a young, the youngest generation that we see, which is really like 18 to 22 in the studio, which we see quite a bit of these um, you know, high school bands, post high school bands that are kick ass, man. They're, they're not stupid people. I mean, I would say that they're the least dumb people we ever see in the studio. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, kind of the most dumb people that we see are like 50 years old, actually. They're, they're the, filled with the dumbest kind of nonsense. And, the, you know, the Internet's made people smarter. It just has. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's more 
there's more access points for people to obviously become educated. And even if they don't have the proper context for that education, it's, it's still, like you said, at least they're connected and they're trying as opposed to, like you said, the, the you know, the 50 year old man or woman who's just like, I don't know what, what's Twitter? So done. You know? So yeah, you're done. Um, the, the last thing I want to hit on before I let you go, because I found it so uh, incredibly interesting how you view your relationship with hip hop, because you, uh, you know, in, in multiple interviews, you've referenced, um, you know, the passion that you have for that genre of music and you view it um, as, uh, you know, for lack of a better term. And correct me if I'm wrong, where it's like you, you, you kind of look at it as a vacation where it's like, you know, you wouldn't be typically interested in maybe like re- recording a you know hip hop artist because you have such a strong passion for that particular music. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I, I felt like there was so much, uh, so many interesting thoughts within the context of that. Cause I, I do feel like a lot of people like look at music as this, this, you know, very linear and binary thing where it's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to follow this road. I'm going to pick up these records and that's kind of what I'm going to do. Um, but you know, all of a sudden your head gets cracked open by something else. And then you're just like, Oh wow, here's this whole other world. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just, well, found, I found it so interesting. There's a couple reasons actually why I wouldn't want to record hip hop. One, I actually don't feel I'd be very good at it. I mean, I really don't. Like, I, I, I think it takes a different skill set. And I think that, I mean, I think I would be good at introducing a certain type of dirtiness and distortion and noisiness into, into stuff I was working on. But I don't think in general I'd be very good at it. There's different rules and there's different um, benchmarks for you know, Bomb Squad, Dre stuff, Neptune stuff, the, like the J-Live. I mean, there's just different, it's a, it's a different art form, you know, in, in many ways. And just like I, I wouldn't be good at recording classical music. I mean, um, so that's one. And two, yeah, I mean, I, I, do, I do like to keep these, like, kind of walls up. Like, I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm a huge, like, for instance, okay, so I'm a huge, like, classical fanatic, like, Big, big time. So I got my friend does press for the um, San Francisco Symphony, and she got me in like a couple weeks ago. And we went, and we kind of went, we went to the back entrance where all the musicians are tuning up, and there's a couple of musicians there, and, I, and there was like this kind of guy like staring at me. He was, I think, mean, he was like a horn player, and so I said, "Hey, how's it going?" And he didn't like, he didn't say anything back to me, and he just like kind of like glowered at me, you know. And I was like fuck this guy, man. You know what I mean? Like, and then, you know, I'm watching this, this, the, the, I don't know, it's like Brooklyn or nine or something. And I'm watching it and he's like playing the horn. I'm like, yeah, there's that fucking asshole that didn't say hi to me, you know? And like, I mean, I actually wasn't really, I don't really care. And I'm being a little bit funny about it, but there is that weird thing where it kind of affected me. Do you know what I mean? Like my love of this, you know, in a vacuum, this stuff is so pure but it gets dirty when you get involved in it. Do you know what I mean? Like when I go to see a band, like an indie rock band, it's like my head is, it's just like, oh, that front of the house guy isn't very good. Oh man, they're playing, why are they playing that reissue Les Paul? Why didn't they just get like an early 70s Les Paul? They're the same price. You know what I mean? All of a sudden it's like so inside and it's so claustrophobic because I know so much about, you know, I have so many personal connections to to that like art form that it almost makes it feel like work, you know? And when I'm watching an NBA game or I'm watching like, um, you know, the boarding trio or something, it's like, it's completely removed from my workspace and my work headspace. Um, and that is very valuable, man. We need to get out of our head. So 
hip hop has that for me for sure. I also think that hip hop is just, you know, this is a huge term. There's like tens of thousands of people in this tent. So it's kind of difficult to be definite about what we're talking about. But I would say that I'm much more likely to be surprised, to be shocked and be incredibly laugh out loud entertained by listening to hip hop and listening to some like somber you know, dude right, yeah, <laughs> sing yeah. a song <laughs> right, about, so, so. about his, you know, with no humor. Like, uh, first off, I mean, there's so much humor in hip hop, like where people see these kind of like boasting, like asshole taunts. I see humor. You know what I mean? I think yeah. it's like incredibly funny, you know what I mean? And like, and I don't, I don't think that like when Earl Sweatshirt's talking about using hollow point bullets, that he's actually really talking about using hollow point bullets. You know what I mean? I, right. I just, you know, I, 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 and so I, I really, I, I think that there's a, a certain level of like wordplay and invention in hip hop. You're, you're never, ever going to see yeah. uh, anywhere else, no, and, no, I, you know, I, outside of like poetry. I totally agree. I, I think it's something that's so important. And I think it's something that is, especially like, you know, I, I'm using, I'm reflecting more on myself than, than what you're talking about, where it's like, sometimes I, I tend to, you know, look at the world through, you know, a very, uh, you know, a very specific lens, because obviously that's my experience. But then it's like, you know, when I hear, you know, whatever, Chance the Rapper's last record, it just like, it opens up my world to, you know, a larger. Yeah, eco- that's a good record. Yeah, it's great. And yeah. it's a larger ecosystem. Yeah. And then not only does it do that, but then like i go you know i saw him perform when he came through on tour and honestly like if i were to just like plug my ears and just view the way that the crowd reacted to him i was like this looks like a punk or a hardcore show and it's like there's very there's very little difference besides maybe the demographic makeup but it was like it still resonated with the same energy and it just yeah it just kind of aligned you know the the that that train of thought in my head to where it's just like oh like this is just this is incredible, and it it never could have come from an independent music scene at like that I am used to, like like you said, everything, yeah, all, yeah. all those feelings that you have. It's just so they're it's incredible to watch that. I'm just glad. I I, I really am glad that you're waving that flag because I think it's it's just important, and I think a lot of people do paint hip hop with this really broad brush of like you said, everything that's you know bombastic and theatrical about it. It's like well, there's a lot going on underneath the hood there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's spectacular. Well, I, John, I really, really appreciate you hanging out with me on the phone. It's been, uh, it's been fun for me to kind of, uh, you know, get to know you and dig into uh, different areas of your life. It's been, uh, it's been great. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Ray. I appreciate the great question, questions too. It's yeah. really fun for. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too, man. So there you go. There's Mr. Vanderslice and all of his wisdom. I loved how candid he was about uh, his drug use and his love for hip hop. It's just nice to be able to hear a different perspective rather than just like, oh, yeah, I like this style of music, and that's kind of it. So anyways, thank you to John, and thank you to Julio for hooking this up, the native sound. And Tom Richfield, our producer, he recently just got back to tour. So hopefully he is still okay. (laughs) And if he's not, I will uh, somberly spread the word that, uh, you know, he broke his hand stage diving at a, a show that he was playing so but no he's he's home safe so we're all glad about that and uh, visit the show's website 100 wordspodcastcom email the show 100 wordspodcast at gmail.com and until next week be safe everybody the show is sponsored by better help 
trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.